Happy Palm Sunday. Welcome to Mosaic. Um, if you haven't caught it yet, my name's Shannon. Really glad to have you guys here. Um, if you're new, welcome. Um, if this is home for you, welcome home. So let's pray, and we'll get into the message. Oh, God, I thank you so much just for the chance to preach your word, for the chance to gather with the people that I love, um, to talk about the God who we love, to remind our hearts again, remind the whole of who we are again, um, of the God who we, we so easily set aside or forget or um, take our eyes off of because our eyes are on some other shiny toy. God, I pray that wouldn't be our morning. Lord, I pray that our eyes would be on you. I pray that our hope would be on you. I pray that the discouragement that we have and the despair that we fall in and out of and um, the guilt and the shame that we have, Lord, I pray that all of these things can be brought to you and that they can just be burned off like dross. Maybe we don't even know what that is, but the, the nasty stuff that we get rid of so we can have some pure gold. Um, God, I pray that you would be working your grace deeper into our hearts this morning, deeper into our lives, and I pray that it would overflow into the lives of the people that we love. Amen. All right, so this is Palm Sunday, um, the beginning of Holy Week. Um, we don't usually talk about it that way, but that's, that's how a lot of people talk about it. Um, we, got, we got a you know, Good Friday coming up. We got that service going on. If you're wondering why it's at noon, it's because we're doing it with the, the church that's graciously sharing this building with us. And they're an older congregation. They're mostly retired. Like middle of the day, that's, that's the time to get this thing done. And a lot of our people are like, you know we work on Good Friday, right? Like, yes, we know you work on Good Friday. You know, but we're building those relationships. If you can come out, we'd love to have you out. Um, so Palm Sunday, it's, it's the day that commemorates the triumphal entry. Um, if, you, if you grew up in Sunday school, if you know your Bibles a bit, it's that scene um, where Jesus and his followers, they're, they're basically leading a parade into the city, and he's riding on a donkey, which isn't like super intimidating or anything like that, but it's humble. And it's filled with symbolism that comes from the Old Testament. He's, he's riding into town as the humble Savior King, as the long-awaited Messiah. And they call it Palm Sunday because on Palm Sunday, the crowds are going wild. Like there's a lot of people who've already decided this is our Messiah and we've been following him for a while. But all of a sudden there's this real surge where, um, where the rest of the city's coming in. It's this festival time and, and, and everyone, everyone's coming into the city anyway. And the crowds are like, really? This guy? This is it? And everyone gets excited and they start literally ripping off their clothes. They take off, like if you read your Bible, they take off their cloaks, but we don't have cloaks. We don't know what there is. You know, the things that aren't their underwear, they're like ripping off their clothes and they're, and they're throwing them on the ground and they're, they're like, this isn't enough. We haven't, we haven't paved the way. We haven't rolled out the red carpet. What are we going to do? And well, there's palm branches. So they start breaking branches off of trees, just these nice smooth palms. And they, they don't want Jesus' feet or the feet of his, his donkey to touch the dirty ground. Because this is our king, and we are so excited to have him here, and they're worshiping him. And then just a few days later, the fickle crowd is turned, and they're crucifying him. And a couple of days after that, after he has died for our sins, he is, he is raised from the dead. And so these are the things that we celebrate this week. Um, that we celebrate Good Friday, the death of Jesus. We celebrate Easter, Resurrection Sunday. But today, it's a day of preparation. Preparing our hearts to worship God this week. Um, preparing our hearts to see the magnitude of what we have that, that maybe we'd be compelled to say, okay, i got to share this with the, the people in my life. All right? 
So, so we're doing this, and we've been doing this for the last few weeks with this series on the songs of ascent. And, um, and if you look in your Bible, it's like um, the, little, the little heading above these, these 15 or so psalms, it says songs of ascents, like multiple ascents, because, because we're going to do this ascent repeatedly, and these are the songs that we're going to sing during this time. So what do we mean by ascend? If, if we're going to understand these passages, I need you to get this scene in your head with me. So imagine you are a child growing up in ancient rural Israel. And again, if you grew up in Sunday school and you're old, you had flanographs. I don't know what your imagination is going to bring to mind, but work it however it goes for you. Imagine you're this child growing up in ancient rural Israel, and you're in a small village, you know, maybe a few hundred people. And uh, some of you, I'm looking at Beth here, my, my youper, and, and me growing up super, super rural. The thing about a really small town is that like, you're related to everybody. Like maybe... Um, Maybe they're like a seventh or eighth cousin, and we've lost track. But but that that crazy guy, he's your crazy uncle. You know, that's you're you're related, and that's even more so in those days. You know, before the transients that we have in our modern society, like you're related to everybody. At the very least, you're a part of the same tribe. You have the same heritage. You have the same faith. You 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 have very similar hopes and dreams. And there's just this this few hundred people, maybe maybe a little over a thousand people that you're doing life with. These are the people that you know. These are the people who you share, um, (laughs) you and your flocks and herds, you share the land with. And throughout most of the year, these are the only people that you have any interaction with. Maybe, you know, randomly somebody travels through your village and it's like a big time. And and who's going to host this guy? Whose house? Who's he doing the sleepover with? Because we don't know you. This is so cool. How did you end up in our village? But for the most part, it's just these very few people that you're, that you're doing life with every day of the year, except when festival time comes. And throughout the Old Testament, we see that God is weaving in um, just to, to the culture and the framework and the life of his people, these annual religious festivals, several of them, all of which are ultimately pointing forward to Christ, the faithfulness of God and, and the faithfulness yet to come in their day through the Messiah. Okay, And so when these days come, these festivals, for the most part, you're, you're headed up to Jerusalem. And you're headed up to Jerusalem because Jerusalem was a city on the hill. And, and so there's this, this long, gradual incline where you know, the plains are coming, coming into small mountains, and eventually you're getting up to the holy city with the holy temple, and that's where the party begins. And so maybe you live 20 miles or 50 miles or, or 80 or 100 miles from Jerusalem, and you're going to walk all the way there, and it's going to take days, but you're not walking alone. It's your whole village that's walking with you, and as you get a little bit closer, it's, it's, it's like when you go to the football game, only like 10 times, 100 times bigger than that, okay? But, but like as you're when you find your parking that's like way, way out from the big house or whatever, and it's just like you and your car load and then a couple other car loads, you know, but then you break out and you get in your pioneer high school and it's a mob, you know? And all of those villages, all of those tribes, all of those people are coming together. And what are they doing while they're on the way up there? They're preparing their hearts for worship. And the way that they're preparing their hearts for worship is that they have, out of the 150 psalms, there's about 15 of them that are called the psalms of ascent. 
The psalms that we sing when we're hiking up that hill on the way to Jerusalem to worship our God. And they're the same set of songs that they sing over and over and over. They weren't, they weren't like us where we got all of our preferences and like, why are you singing the hymn? Why are you singing the old thing? Why are you singing the new thing? No, no, they, they had this more unified culture. It wasn't, wasn't changing as frequently. These are just the songs that we're all into. You know, we were into them when we're three. We're into them at 33. We're into them at 103. These are the songs that we sing together. And one of the beautiful things that John pointed out last week that just really struck me is these are the songs that Jesus sang. You know, when, when Jesus was three, when Jesus was 13, when Jesus was 33 or whatever the, the age is that, that, that we figured he was at when, when he went to the cross, when, when the triumphal entry came, when he led his disciples into the city, when they came up from Jericho to Jerusalem, these are the songs that they were singing. And what are the songs about? They're about the grace of God. They're, they're, they're about, and particularly the psalm we're going to look at today, Psalm 130. It's, it's, about, it's about our desperate need for grace. And it's about this wonderful and forgiving God who is gracious. And the opportunity that we have to, to put our hope in him. And, and, and it's about this reality that one day somehow, um, to, to quote one of the latter verses in this psalm, one day somehow this God would redeem Israel from all of their sins. They had no idea how that was going to go down. But one day, somehow, God was going to redeem Israel from from all their sins. So imagine the scene where Jesus, every year, several times a year, as he comes to the festivals, he is joining with the tens and the hundreds and the thousands and the tens of thousands and, you know, maybe a million people as they converge on the city singing about what he has come to earth to do. That's amazing. That's beautiful. That's awesome. So, so the ancient people of God, they use these psalms to prepare their hearts for worship, and, and we're going to do the same. So Songs of Ascent, Psalm 130, um, where we're going to see our need for grace, our God who gives grace, and the invitation to hope in our gracious God. First thing we see is our need for grace. Um, I'm going to read just the first three verses of Psalm 130. Um, there's a little header at the top. It says, a song of ascents. Verse 1. Out of the depths, I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to my cry for mercy. If you, O Lord, kept a record of sins, O Lord, who could stand? I want you to feel the emotion in this psalm because the psalms are packed with emotion. Um, you know, as a kid, I kind of like to avoid the Psalms because they're, and all the poetry in the Bible, because it was just harder to understand. It wasn't straightforward. It was, I don't know, all, all feely and whatnot. I didn't know what to do that. But like, as I get a little bit older and I'm like jacked up in different ways than I was when I was a kid, like, like I can appreciate just the emotion of the Psalms. And one of the great things about the Psalms is like, you can find Psalms for whatever emotion you're dealing with, you know, elation, despair, everything in between. Um, and, and, and there's different circumstances that are being dealt with, like, um, like David, whoever's writing this, I don't think this one's ascribed to David, uh, says, out of the depths I cry to you. Now, de- depending on the psalm, those depths might be any variety of things, you know? Sometimes, um, sometimes it's, it's depths of despair. Sometimes, um, sometimes it's, um, it's, it's a physical danger. Sometimes it's an emotional despair. In this case, we're looking at moral depth. 
And, and we see that a little bit in verse 3, and we see that in other clues that we get, that, that what he's getting at is not that he's having a bad day or bad circumstances or that you know, Saul is chasing David or the Philistines are on the run or you know, whatever it is, but the, the, the depths that he's talking about here are the depths of his own depravity. And he's like, come in touch with that. And he realizes his selfishness and his brokenness and how, how God is holy and he is not holy. How God is perfect and wonderful and moral and right and just. And while we're created in his image, that image has been damaged. And we don't reflect that well. And he's like, ah, I see me. You know, it's, it's, it's like um, when you first get married and you're like, this is going to be awesome. And this is going to be easy. And all of a sudden, it's this mirror where you're just like seeing every day just how selfish you are. You know, and you got somebody that you're trying to do life with and agree on how you're going to do it. And like, there's so many rubs and like, oh no, this, is, this isn't easy. Like, I, I so thought this was going to be easy. Okay, and, and scripture is like that for us. It just holds up this mirror to our life that says, this is who God is. And God is wonderful and God is perfect. And this is who we are. And it's not the same thing. So he saw the sin, he saw this guilt, and it crushed him. Um, that's why a lot of translations, they interpret this cry as a cry for mercy, a cry to withhold the punishment that we deserve and to extend the grace that we could never deserve. Um, again, verse 3, it goes on to talk about our sins. Look at it again. It says, if you, O Lord, kept a record of sins, O Lord, who could stand? Listen to it again. If you, O Lord, kept a record of sins, who could stand? By implication, no one could stand. You could not stand, and you could not stand. And, and the pastor guy who's preaching on Sunday, he could not stand. There is this temptation, and there is this, there is this thing in cultural Christianity, this arrogance, that looks at the outside world and imagines that morally, I'm like a head taller than everyone else. You know, I'm standing a little bit elevated so that I can see you. You know, I'd love us to get back to being in a room where it's sloped and you guys are like above me and I'm looking up. Because the Christian message is not that the pastor is the moral guy who like stands a head taller than everyone else. Okay? That's, that's just not the Christian faith. We who follow Jesus, we're the people who recognize the depths of our depravity. Who recognize that, that God is a whole lot more than a head taller morally than we are. You know, and, and that we're not better than our neighbor. No, we're, 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 we're broken. We're, we might be more wicked than our non-Christian neighbors. And yet we have this God who loves us in spite of us. And then we have this God who says, I'm going to love you, and I'm going to be patient with you, and I'm going to be gracious with you. And over time, my grace, applied by my spirit, is going to transform you from the inside out until you actually do become like me. That's, that's just the beauty of the Christian faith. We are, we are not the people who believe that we can stand in our own merit. We are the people who recognize that if we're ever going to stand, we are going to stand by grace. And yet there's just something in our, in our fallen, self-righteous, wicked, self-centered nature that struggles to hold on to that truth. You know, like, like Proverbs talks about the fool and says, um, the fool is like the dog that returns to its own vomit. Okay? 
And, and if you've been trying to, to live these things out in your life, then you've probably seen that, like me, oftentimes you are that fool. You know, you're the, you're the dog that's returning to the vomit of your own self-righteousness. And you want to imagine yourself as a tremendously good person, an exceptionally good person, a, 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 a wonderfully righteous person. And on a good day, you demand that people are going to respect you like the, the pillar of society that you are, which we call pride. Okay? And on a bad day, you and I, we, we wallow in despair. You know, when, when, we just, when we just see our sin, we're like, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm so terrible and I can't imagine that, that God will ever accept me again. Okay? Which kind of is also pride. It's like, me, 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 me. When the mantra of, of Christianity is Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. He is gracious and he is good and he is the one who loves us and he is the one who redeems us and he is the one who promises to to recreate us from the inside out. And so what we see happening in these psalms, the psalms are written to fools, okay? The psalms are written to us. They're written to people like us who forget who our God is and how we're called to relate to him. And so these psalms are here to prepare our hearts for worship. Again, it's the songs of ascent that we sing as, as we traverse the holy, as we climb the holy hill that prepares our hearts to worship our God. So first we see our need for grace. Next we see our God who gives grace. Verse 4 says, But with you, with you, with you, with you, with God, there is forgiveness. Therefore you are feared. With you there is forgiveness of our sins, our past, present, and future sins. With you there is grace, the grace that we long for, the grace that we need. But with you, O God, there is forgiveness. Therefore you are feared. If you're like me, or if you're paying attention just a little bit, with you there is forgiveness, therefore you are feared. That's weird, right? That doesn't seem to fit, right? Like, like how does forgiveness lead to fear? How does grace lead to fear? In the New Testament, we read that, that perfect love drives out fear. Because fear has to do with punishment. Okay, but what we see in here is that, that the psalmist is singing, you, man, you are such a forgiver, and that's why we're afraid. Right? Literally, it says fear. But I don't think, I don't think that, that, it, that it's talking about being terrified of judgment. I think that's the exact opposite. But I, but I think one of the nuances of the word fear is awe. Like, um, one of my aspirations is to go to the Grand Canyon one day. But I know um, kind of the way I'm built, and the way I'm built particularly in regard to heights, that I'm going to be one of those people that if I get towards the edge of the Grand Canyon, like not like edge, edge, but like 10, 20, you know, 35 feet from the edge, you know, that I'm going to be one of those people. I'm going to be like up on my tiptoes a little bit because I want to see a little bit down into the canyon, but not by getting closer to the canyon because that's nuts. And my kids who are more brave than me, they're going to want to get closer to the canyon. I'm going to, come on, get back here, you know? But, but, and just they're making faces at me. This is not, that's not the application. Thank you. Um, you know, but I'm going to be one of those people who, as I'm doing my tiptoe thing, 35 feet from the edge, and, and I see just a little bit further down in the canyon, can like, chills are going to shoot through my legs, 
you know, like, like just that, that involuntary spasm of the quads that lets me know, no, put your heels down, flex your knees a little bit. You don't want to pass out here. This will be embarrassing, you know, just chill. Um, why? Because the Grand Canyon is beautiful and majestic and amazing and, and powerful, and it shakes you to the core. Okay, like like it, at least for a person like me, that sort of thing evokes a physical response. The awe that's created by it. And that's what the psalmist is saying that the good news of God's grace should do in our lives. When we grasp the magnitude of how forgiving our God is, of how loving our God is, of how gracious our God is, it should shoot a spasm through our body. Like, like it should make our knees knock. It should make, it, it, it should make our legs weak, you know? Like, like I, I need somebody to steady me because I might pass out here. This is crazy, amazing grace and love and forgiveness that we're talking about here. Some translations trying to get at that, the, the idea that he means when he says fear, trying to get at this idea of awe. He says, you know, with you there is forgiveness. Therefore, therefore we can stand in awe and serve you with reverence. That's the idea that he's getting at in this passage, that we would stand in awe of his grace. So there's basically two ditches, two dangers, two ditches that, that we need to avoid in, in regard to God's grace. Um, the, the first ditch is that we would struggle to receive God's grace. That we would recognize the holiness of God. That we would recognize the virtue and the goodness and the righteousness of God and we would see something of our sin and we would be like yeah, it, it's just not going to work between me and God. I'm not the sort of person that God would forgive. Okay? Um, some of you guys coming from a really moralistic, religious background, like, that's your hang-up. Like, the grace of God sounds amazing. The grace of God sounds beautiful, but certainly the grace of God is not for me. You know, because you've had, you had people slapping your hand and telling you how bad you are all of your life, and you're like, yeah, I mean, like, it's for good people or whatever. And again, some of us, like, like I grew up in a tradition that was really big on the gospel, at least on, like, conversions and walking the aisle and, you know, praying the sinner's prayer and all those sorts of things, and yet there was a legalism and there was a rigidity. You know, there was a performance mentality. And so when I have those days when, when I'm struggling with sin, you know, and rebellion against God looks, looks more attractive than following God. And, and like, like one of the verses I've been I'm running through my head lately, it says, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. When I have days that I know the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart are not pleasing to God, it's, it's hard for me to believe that his grace is for me. Um, there's a, I'm trying to think uh, even which guy it is, there's like a Christian hip-hop thing that says, like, one more failure and the father will push the eject button. You know? That's, that's how I feel sometimes. And that's an error. That's ridiculous. That's missing what the psalmist is trying to pound into our heads, that we have a God of profound and amazing grace. With him there is forgiveness. And not just of past sins, but past, present, and future sins. He's not, the, he's not the guy who's looking for a chance to kick us out or to reject us. He is, the, he is the father who says, you are mine, and you are jacked up, but you're my jacked up. And I love you. 
I'm going to forgive you again and again and again and again. And your neighbor who you can't even stand and who you're like feuding with over the bushes. I love him too. And I want you to love him too. Okay, so that's one of the ditches. That, that, that we fail to believe that God's grace could be for us or that God's grace could be for others. We, we fail to see the magnitude of God's grace. The second danger is that we would fail to see our need for grace. That we don't see his holiness. That we don't see his uniqueness. That we don't see that he is perfectly good. And that it is a wonderful and a good and a gracious and and a loving thing that he would set the standard for every area of our lives, for every area of our culture, for every area of our world. That he alone knows what is good and, and right and what will lead to human flourishing. And he calls us into that. And everything else, he says, that's sin. It's, it's out of bounds, not because I'm arbitrary, but because I'm good and because I want good things for you. When we fail to grasp the holiness of God and the goodness of God and, and the, the depth to which we fall short of the grace of God and the holiness of God and the righteousness of God, we, we just can't appreciate grace. You know, for a person who's coming in with this mindset, they, they hear about the grace of God and like, I don't know what you guys are so excited about. I mean, of course God's gracious. Why wouldn't he be gracious? It's not like we're bad people or something, you know? Like, the, the concept of a God who is like serious about sin or serious about judgment or, you know, could be associated with wrath, it's, it's just so foreign because we have a devalued view of the holiness and righteousness of God, and we have an elevated view of the goodness and righteousness of man. So again, there, there's just no need for grace in our worldview. Or the, the little bit of grace that's needed is kind of like, a, you know, it's, it's the white lie. Like you told grandma that the, the roast beef was good when in reality it was so dry, you were like, oh, put some more, some more butter on the potatoes. I need, I need some sort of lubricant to get this stuff down, but I got to tell grandma it's good. And, you know, what's the harm in that? Okay? So again, two ditches. One ditch that we believe that God's grace couldn't be for me because, because I'm just too broken. We, we fail to see the magnitude of God's grace. And the other ditch that we fail to see is holiness, our need for grace. The psalmist calls us away from both of these ditches. He says, but with you, with God, there is forgiveness. Therefore, you are feared. Therefore, we, we stand in awe of you because we recognize that your grace is amazing. Because, because I have no one else in my life who has such good reason to look down on me morally and never forgive me. And yet I also have no one in my life who is so tenaciously and perfectly committed to for continuing to forgive me. Think about that. God is the one person in your life who doesn't mess up. He's the one person who can morally say, you don't deserve my forgiveness. And yet he is the only person in your life who perfectly forgives you. Who takes your sin and says, I've removed it as far as the east is from the west. Though your sins were as scarlet, I'm making them white as snow. Forget about it. Wouldn't that be amazing if that's how we treated one another? 
If it wasn't like, oh, the, the fight comes up again, like, well, remember the last time when you did this? Yeah, I remember. That's why I'm still ticked at you. You know? God is gracious. May we embrace his grace. May the gospel be more than just theory for us. But may we daily experience the the beauty of his love and his grace. May it drive us to hate our sin and may it give us hope that our sin will not define us, but that that God will define us as his children. All right, first thing, we, we see our need for grace. Second, we see our God who gives grace. And finally, we see a call to hope in our gracious God. Verse five, he says, I wait for the Lord. My soul waits. And in his word, I put my hope. I want you to hear the longing in this. I want you to hear the intensity. I wait for the Lord. My, my soul waits. It's not just like this intellectual longing or like I'm looking at my watch and I'm, you know, it's not like you guys, like, is he ever going to stop? Is he, are we getting near the end of the sermon? No, it's, it's not like that. It's, it's more intense than that. It's like with everything that I've got, I, I long for this. Something deep within me longs for my God. I feel incomplete apart from him. The psalmist says, I know I won't be waiting forever. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits in his word. In other words, in his promises, I put my hope. Hope for what? Hope of what? Hope of forgiveness. That's the context of this whole psalm. Hope of redemption. Hope of restoration. Hope that the selfish impulses within me will one day give way to godliness. He says, I wait for the Lord. My soul waits. And in his word, I put my hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen wait for the morning, more than watchmen wait for the morning. We don't have a lot of watchmen in our society. This isn't kind of how we're built. But he reiterates it. He, says it. he says it twice. My soul waits for the Lord as the watchman waits for the morning, as the watchman waits for the morning. For better or worse, this is probably a, an image that we actually have more accessible right now than we do at most points in our society. If you've been watching the news, if you've been you know, catching up with what's going on in Ukraine, this is, this is the kind of picture that he's painting, a picture of warfare, a picture of siege. A picture of the, of the enemies of God surrounding the people of God, of, of the, the enemies of ancient Israel surrounding them, and of the watchman. The guy who's responsible to stay awake all night long in case there is an attack during the night. The guy who is watching the enemy troop movements. The, 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 the guy who is ready to sound the alarm and, 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 raise, and raise the whole city to fight. Okay, this is, this is the sort of anxiety and the sort of longing that we're reading about and we're hearing about in the news every day. You know, as Ukraine's under siege and as not just soldiers, but, but fathers and mothers and older siblings whose parents are already dead and now they're in charge. We can't sleep. And they're looking out the window. And they're, and they're hoping that the, the, the enemy isn't coming down their streets. And, you know, the bombs, the bombs are terrible, but, 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 but man, I, I'm just hoping that the soldier hasn't come to rape and to kill and to plunder and to do all of those things. And they long for the morning because as dangerous as the circumstances are at every time of day, at, at least daylight brings a little bit of comfort, a little bit of hope. It, it means that, that what might be a shadow or might be a raccoon or might be the enemy, I don't know because it's in the distance and it's dark. All of a sudden you can see and you can tell. 
And when you're in physical danger like that, when you're in the fog of war, you long for the morning. Thomas is like, that's how I long for the grace of God. Because I see my need for his grace. I see my need for his redemption. The crazy thing about the circumstances they were in, we're going to get to it here in a second, but they were, they were longing for the grace of God that they were going to see in their daily lives. But in terms of their complete redemption, in terms of their full, plentiful redemption that we're going to read about in a minute, it was still in the future and they didn't even know how it was going to come. They're singing these songs about Jesus, but they don't know what Jesus is going to do. They don't know his name. They know this Messiah is going to come. This Savior is going to come. This, this, this priest who's, who's better than the Levites and better than Melchizedek and this king that's better than David and, 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 and this prophet that's better than Moses and, and you know, this, this Lamb of God who's going to take away the sins of the world, although they hadn't put all those categories together yet. They hadn't figured it out. And, and yet it's, it's coming in the future and they're singing about it and they're longing for it. How much more for us who see what God has done on the cross, who, who have the ability to, to understand his plan of redemption. And, and all we need to do is trust him that he is at work applying it to our lives. What a beautiful thing. But that is the longing that they had to see the grace of God worked out in their lives. So I want us to see the intensity of their longing. I also want us to see um, the, the object of this hope. They, they hope in the Lord. Their soul waits for the Lord. Maybe most importantly in verse 7, I want us to see this invitation and this call to share in the hope that the psalmist shares. Verse 7, he says, O Israel, or we could say, O church, put your hope in the Lord. For with the Lord is unfailing love. And with him is full redemption. Um, you read different translations, they're going to all say that last phrase differently. Full redemption. Plentiful redemption. Spurgeon was, was, was preaching about plenteous redemption. I don't even know what that means. I don't think we use that word anymore. But abundant, overflowing, like, like a redeeming, a, a buying back, a, a recreating from the inside out that is beyond all imagination. And again, for the psalmist, he had to use his imagination because he had not seen the cross. For us, we can, we can look at what God has done and, and we can just marvel. Oh, church, put your hope in the Lord, for with the Lord is unfailing love, and with him is full, complete, abundant, overflowing redemption. Again, we're tempted to put limits on God's love as though God can tolerate us up to a certain point and then forget it. You know, that he's just going to get tired of us, that he's going to kick us to the curb. That's not the testimony of Scripture. The testimony of Scripture is that we serve a God of unfailing love and full redemption. Some of you guys are familiar with the Jesus Storybook Bible. Uh, we give it out to kids in the kids' ministry. I've given it out to a lot of adults. And sometimes they're maybe appreciated. A lot of times they feel like I'm insulting them. Like, why are you giving me a children's Bible? And I'm giving you a children's Bible because it's beautifully illustrated and it's masterfully written and it makes clear the grace of God. And it takes the Bible stories that you might be familiar with and it shows how they all point to Jesus. In it, uh, Sally Lloyd-Jones, the, the author of the book, um, in the opening pages, as you get past creation and you get into the fall, the fall of Adam and Eve, 
um, she begins to speak to the relentless grace of God and, and how God has not given up on his people. And, and she says, you see, no matter what, in spite of everything, God would love his children with a never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love. God would love his children with a never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love. A tenacious love that takes all of our brokenness and it recreates it and mends it together into something new, into something beautiful. That's why we named the church Mosaic. Because we are a bunch of people who by the grace of God have come to see our own brokenness and who every day are just fighting to believe the gospel in such a way that we can be honest about just how broken we are and that we can hope that God's going to take all of these shattered pieces and he's going to build us together, not just as individuals, but as a community out of all these ugly broken pieces into something that's beautiful and to something that's better than, than, than what we brought to the table when we walked in the room. That is the, the, the never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love. Oh, church, put your hope in the Lord, for with the Lord is unfailing love, and with him is full redemption. With him is abundant, overflowing redemption. And it's a redemption that he himself will accomplish. Verse 8, last verse. Talking about God, the psalmist writes, thousand years before Jesus, he writes, He himself, God himself, will redeem Israel from all their sins. He wrote, looking to the future. Um, Someone has said, in the past, they were saved on credit. Now we are saved on debit. They were saved by faith in the grace of God through a sacrifice that had yet to be fleshed out, that had yet to be provided. That that has been provided now. And and we cannot draw down the bank account of, of God's provision. God himself will redeem Israel from all their sins, written 3,000 years ago. God himself has redeemed the church from all their sins, and he will continue to redeem us. What a beautiful thing to think of Jesus from his small village as a child singing this song about the God who will redeem his people. What a beautiful thing for three-year-old Jesus, four-year-old Jesus, five, 13-year-old, to sing this song with 15, 20, 30 people as they head out of the village and to have the throng grow until it's hundreds and thousands and tens of thousands that are putting their hope in this God who will someday redeem and restore his people. What a beautiful thing for him to know and in that moment to be the only one who knows that he has come, that God has become a man, that he was among them because he was was working that plan to redeem his people. And what a beautiful thing that we can continue to celebrate that today. Amen? That's how we prepare our hearts for worship. That's how we prepare our hearts for this week. And we want to continue to meditate on these things throughout the week. And 
And I hope, my prayer for all of us, is that this will embolden us to be the people who trust in his grace for ourselves and to be the people who are bold enough to share that grace with others. Amen? Let's pray. Oh God, I pray that this morning you have already prepared our hearts to sing. Um, Lord, I just look forward to singing out of your grace. Um, God, I pray for those who are um, still trying to figure out what they want to do with you and whether they believe in this grace and whether they believe in your holiness and that you are a God who has the right to call sin, sin. Um, God, I pray for those who, who are struggling to embrace just an identity as somebody who's broken and who has been broken by sin and who has been distorted by sin and to recognize that while that's a terrible thing, it's not a defining thing. Um, God, may we be a people who are characterized and, and just saturated with your grace. May it define us and may it define our relationships with one another. May it define our relationships um, with those who don't know you that we we live and work with every day. Amen.